name is Blair. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. But when it comes to DJs, I'll put you at the top of the class. Cause I love rock and funk and pop and punk and all that jazz. From hip hop to bebop to doo-wop, you ain't playing no flops. The way you kiss my ears kicks my ass. afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, so pleased to be sitting across the table from Derek Mong. Derek, welcome back to Ann Arbor. Thank you so much. What a delight. <laughs> well, my favorite cities. Well, it's good to see you. And you're, you're here for the Zell Visiting Writers series, mm-hmm. and you're going to be reading tomorrow um, over at, the, at UMA. Right? There's right? Yeah. Thursday, yeah. five-ish. Five-ish. I think, yes. After the tea, yeah. Well, lovely. Well, welcome back. It's good to have you back in town. Thank you. Um, you're here um, because of your debut collection, Other Romes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll be, you'll be reading poems from that tomorrow and also maybe some, some new, new poems too or yeah. Yeah. throwing I, it all out there. I'll throw, yeah, <laughs> I will definitely throw a few new poems in tomorrow. And we'll hear some, hopefully, uh, before the end of the show. We're sort of talking about that as well. So yes. we'll hear poems from other Romes um, out with Saturnalia Books. Um, and let's see, before we go any further, Derek, I'm going to read your biography from the back of the book. <laughs> Derek Mung was the 2008-2010 Axton Fellow in Poetry at the University of Louisville. His awards include the Missouri Review's Jeffrey E. Smith Editor's Prize, a Hall's Poetry Fellowship from the University of Wisconsin, and two Hopwood Awards. His poetry and translations have appeared in such journals as the Southern Review, Kenyon Review, and Pleiades. He holds an MFA from the University of Michigan and is currently pursuing a PhD at Stanford University. He lives in San Francisco with his wife, Annie, and his son. My little guy. Who's just turned one, is it, Derek? Nearly so. End of the month, September 30th. Ah, wow. We will be the proud parents of a one-year-old boy, which is frankly just quite startling. It seems like yesterday he was about, oh, six pounds, eight ounces and crawling up my bare chest. Ah, and so are you starting to write baby poems I was starting to write pregnancy poems oh, just before, yeah, just before I was born. And I still don't quite know if I know what, it's interesting. I mean, this idea that someone you haven't met yet is alive inside your wife has a very strange feeling. And I don't quite know how to totally process it, but that's what those poems are trying to do. Yeah. I can, yeah, I know it's 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 a miracle. Even though it's it's something that we should all <laughs> be quite quite aware is happening, it's still yeah. a m- miraculous thing. Definitely. Um, well, well, let's see. Well, Derek, um, 
Can we tell? Can you tell me a little bit about the press? Because you won. This is a this is a book prize. This is a, a rate a first book prize. Well, n- not quite. Mm. It was submitted to a first book prize. Um, so the press is Saturnalia Books. Um, they are in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Philly. They were in Philly for a little while, um, and I did submit it as a book prize in. What did that have been? Maybe 2009? And it wasn't picked for the prize, but, you know, I was in the lucky situation of having a great publisher who was behind the book. It was a finalist. Carl Phillips really liked the book. And the publisher of the press, a guy named Henry Israeli, you know, called me up with one of those, you could tell he had a smirk or a smile on his face, and he was like, good news, bad news. And I already had known I was a finalist, and he said, you know, we didn't take the book for the prize, but I'd still like to publish it. So it was lovely. I mean, it, it was a lovely experience, and and um, I had a great time with the press putting it together. And yeah, I was uh, I was lucky. I mean, anyone who uh, picks up a copy will see that I have really short line poems. I have very long line poems, and um, my publisher was so accommodating and and opened up the size of the book to make it a little bit um, a little bit wider and a little bit taller so that those poems could really fit across the page. It was great. Yeah, it's a lovely, it's a lovely shape. And and the image on the front, would you like to, how how much were you able to have a hand in that? And A complete hand, yeah. I mean, I, again, this is, this, this experience was really um, just a joy throughout. I mean, there's a certain stress in sort of knowing you have to make certain decisions in terms of poems and in terms of editing that will then be final, right? Like, or at least in some sense the books in the world, but I did have tons of... Um... Wait till you're selected. It's okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Then I can sort of like, oh, I'll tinker, right? And then I'll, yeah, I'll make, I'll make matters worse. Um, the photography on the cover is by um, a wonderful artist named Abelardo Morel. And it is, it's an image of the Colosseum. I think that's right. It's, it's uh, listed in the, in the contents page here. But um, what he does is these uh, magnificent camera obscura images where he takes a, a room um, in a city and um, I think he puts a little hole in the wall or there's some process by which he creates an entire room that projects an image of a street scene below it. And then he sets up his camera inside this room and he exposes a picture. So, you know, for a book that's you know titled Other Romes, we have this wonderful palimpsest of, you know, a projected image on a wall. There's even a painting inside of that hotel room. There's some cars um, that have just become beams of light running down a street. So, um, yeah, it's delightful. It seems like part of the mission of the press to match an artist with a writer. Is that true, Derek? Is that That's true, yeah. They have an entire series where they match artists and writers. And the most recent book that they have is um, a book by Star Black with... um, Bill Knott? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's they're really interested. They're, Henry Israeli is very invested in making beautiful books, and I am lucky to, to be part of that. Oh, well, it's exciting, it's, and they're lucky to have you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and, and so we were talking briefly before we came on the air, Carl Phillips, friend of the show, and he mm-hmm. and he's also features prominently in your acknowledgments, too. Is, is, did you um, work with him, or was he involved at this, at this press level more? Um, I've met Carl here and there over the years. Um, Carl was a... Carl, I nearly ended up going to University of Washington in St. Louis, where Carl Phillips te- teaches for uh, my MFA, and then wound up here. Uh, a decision I in no way regret. But um, I've um, Carl was here at Michigan for a two-week 
um, kind of artist residency at the Institute for the Humanities. Um, and that would have been probably 2006 because my wife was at the Institute for the Humanities working on her dissertation at the time. Um, and she got to know him and she, you know, had, you know, their little two week, they would have a workshop every day or every other day. And um, he read from The Rest of Love, which I'm looking at a copy of now on the table. Um, and that was a time when, yeah, Carl came to visit here and, and read. And you might have attended that reading, too, I want to say. Yeah, 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 it was great. Um, so, yeah, and then when the, the book came out, um, I sent him a copy and he, he sent me a very nice letter. So, yeah, and, he's a delightful person. And, well, Derek, um, you mentioned coming here to Michigan for the MFA. Mm-hmm. And um, you also said that recently you've been, um, for the, since Sunday, you've been on the road. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, yeah, your tour? My Yeah, my wife has been um, very, very sweet and has taken the baby for, uh, well, we, we have a, a nanny that we share with another family during the day. Um, that doesn't mean by any instance, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, of course, that um, childcare ends. So she is at home with the baby and I am off traveling, reading from my book. Um, and I just talked to her before we came over. But uh, long story short, I was uh, at Denison University in Granville, Ohio, rural Ohio. Uh, I gave a reading last night. I met with some of the lovely students, and I uh, got to see some of my my mentors, my you know friends, my old teachers, uh, the poets Ann Townsend, David Baker, fiction writer named Margot Singer, some other folks. So, um, and then I drove up here today. So, and this is my other alma mater. So, it's kind of like a, a lovely homecoming for me. I mean, you know, right? Like you go back and you've brought a book out, so you can't help but feel pretty good about yourself and you'll be and you just drove in literally so you've got everyone yet to see sort of on the horizon you're the first here. person i've seen that's right yeah it's been great yeah i've, I've been here about an hour <laughs> well welcome back derek thank you and when you were here what were like is there any like stand out like thinking about thinking back to the mfa program like stand out moments of things where you're like god i'm glad i know that um, from oh. being here, like sort of those words of wisdom or, oh boy, I mean, there's or just so many things. There's a, yeah, there's <laughs> a, I mean, the, the entire experience, right. As an education, as you know, it's, um, you know, you meet people. I remember when, uh, Jeff Schatz, the editor of Grey Wolf came in and talked to everyone and boy, I don't know if I can exactly quote one of the particular things that he said, but, um, hearing about publishing from right that point of view was such a an eye-opening experience um, for a lot of us. Maybe, I don't can't remember if you were here then at that meeting, but a lot of us were sort of, you know, building our theses and, and sort of thinking about um, poems in big groupings. And, you know, I still think there's a big difference between finishing your MFA and, and putting together your thesis and then putting together your first book, but a lot of the insights that he had. I remember he said at some point that, boy, he was reading all these books of poems and the same four words were coming up like over and over again. And he was like, what is in the poetry air? You know, that like we've got like the word ether or something that just keeps recurring. I I use that word. That wasn't one that he mentioned because that's one that sort of shows up in my book maybe a few too many times. Ether. Yeah. Why? And what is that? Why do you why do you think that's one of your touchstone words, Derek? That's a good probably because it's not air, which sounds a little more plain and and um every day um and yet there's a number of poems i'll probably make this joke tomorrow with the reading or perhaps i can't now because I'll, I'll have outed it but there's a number of poems with me like falling naked through the sky um 
And the sky is never just the sky. It's the ether. Or at least it, it has happened in, a, a few times. You know, you go and do readings from a book that you've finished, you know, a year or two years ago. And you notice things, right, that you wouldn't have noticed. And you notice words that maybe other people aren't noticing, but you notice that you've used over and over again. Um, ether is certainly one of mine. And, and there's also something deep down. I didn't notice this when I was writing it, that I have some relationship with falling through the sky and my clothes coming off as I do it, or something about the freeing quality of that of that experience. Well, let's take a short break, and when sure. we come back, Derek, maybe maybe you could read us one of those falling through the sky poems. Let's do it. Okay, you're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Derek Mong is here. His first collection, Other Roams. We'll be right back. It's Christmas time in Washington, the Democrats rehearsed, getting into gear for four more years, things not getting Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and thanks to Brian Delaney for being in the engineering seat. Um, I love how Joan Baez just said, come back, Woody Guthrie, and uh, Derek Mong is here in the studio. Uh, he's he's responsible for the song choices that you'll be hearing uh, this hour. Derek, why the Joan Baez? Oh, it's, it's a great story. Um, Joan Baez is a family friend. Um, of not so much my generation, but my father's. My father's met her, my father's brother, un- uh, my Uncle Larry. We always think of him as Uncle Larry. Um, met Joan Baez way back when, worked at the Monterey Folk Festival for her. She got him a job there. And Larry has two children, Shannon and Joshua. And Joan Baez recorded a song called Children and All That Jazz way back in the day. And there is, um, I think the refrain of that song is just children's names. And Shannon and Joshua are included in those children's names as a little sort of nod to my Uncle Larry. So, oh, and now a shout out to Uncle Larry out there. And- shout out to Uncle Larry. <laughs> he lives in Berkeley. And um, yeah, I've, I've, I've taken my wife to some Joan Baez concerts. I've gone to them on my own. I'm the youngest guy there more often than not. But I love her to death. She's she's great. Have you ever tried to meet her, Derek, or gone like... Oh, I, you know, I chicken out. Yeah, I really would love to. I mean, she seems like such a warm person who's who's open to that sort of thing. And I've never stuck around the concert afterwards to 
to see if I couldn't say hey or or maybe try to request a song or something. But yeah, I mean, I could say hey, I'm I'm Larry Monk's <laughs> nephew. Mm. Yeah, maybe soon. You have to let us know. Yeah, give us give us the story, yeah. or maybe write a poem, Joan Baez. Right, that'll be the a, an occasion to that would say be hello, Joan. <laughs> yeah, and send it to her. And so yes. Yeah. Mm. And it's interesting because you picked this particular song and it's it's not Christmas time. <laughs> no. Um, but there is the political angle to this and politics ever since, um, I think, the, f- the first day I think I met you in workshop, mm-hmm. then one of the first poems you put up, like there's these these um, these elements of politics running through. Yeah. The, the, the mix of I mean, the book, this book, Other Realms, is, is inspired deeply by. Um, well, that last 10 years that we sort of all lived, basically the sort of absurd decade that's kind of defined in some way. By, I, I always think of it as defined by John Stewart's comedy because it's <laughs> when it takes off in some way because there is so much, such a nightmare sort of that we were facing. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly where I was sort of uh, going with this, but um, the private and, and the public um, coming together um, has a big effect on this book. There's a long poem in here. Um, in the sort of fourth section called Morning, Noon, and Night um, that I wrote while I was here. I wrote this in Ann Arbor. I didn't quite finish it, maybe. I might have brought it to workshop at one point. Um, but the setting Let's for hear this... it. Would Let's, you like to hear yeah, it? Yeah, that sure. would be lovely. And then we'll get to the falling one. We won't forget that. Oh, delightful. Promises made. Excellent. <laughs> um, great. Well, this is called Morning, Noon, and Night. It's in four sections. Today's nothing but sun. White curtains flung till their shadows span our feet last week did i tell you this i found an old woman asleep in our tomatoes she lay there as you now drowse here though this weekend's pace slips like a glacier between us listen that's our world gone on working somewhere tree branches tap their pane of glass The street hums and stills. Your kettle begins to tremble. Everywhere, grief figures itself inside this house, so long as we lock our doors to all that keeps breathing through our one keyhole. Two. Noon. Hotter. You sneak inside the times, munch toast, eggs, tomatoes. I drift between my dreams and these headlines, unsure which I am more afraid of skimming, pain I will close my eyes to, or pain I can just smear with fingers. Yesterday a girl walked into the fog. We wash our mugs while the cops go looking for her boyfriend. Tomorrow the gulf will spite the poor some more. A lost war just continues. When you reach the shower steam, I pause at each of our windows, breathe clouds into the glass until I'm followed by vanishing ellipses. Your garden brims in their absence. Three. Is the trouble that our world's troubles reign large or that we love guilt-free above them? You've heard me leave you asleep ease myself into the gray light that leaks from midnight movies. But sometimes I simply drive, swing my headlights till they skim the river's edge, then wade in up to my belt line. 
It's there I caught a water strider, cupped him inside the high beam's light, and watched grace sustain itself, a grace so untouched by all that pressure it thrives on. Four. Tonight's nothing but love. Stripped clothes, pillows spilling, massacred from the sofa. Moonlight fills the pots and pans. We pass our hands along the bridge. These hips insinuate between us. Is there one whisper here, two or three? When I speak of the old woman, how she woke seeds like acne on her chin to my one question. Do you want some tomatoes? Eyes closed, breath low, I try to sleep beside you. Washed by your breath's lonely hum, it moves a buoy through the evening. Thanks, Derek. Sure. Thanks. And I do remember that. I actually remember the image of the old woman in the tomato patch. Yeah. Very, very clearly. My wife had started a tomato patch when we lived in Ann Arbor. She started in an apartment, and we were we just met. We knew we were sort of something special, but we weren't sure um, whether we want to live together. And when she moved out of the apartment, I moved into it, and I kept the tomato patch going. And um, the woman is fictitious, but there was a sense throughout all that time. This was um, after 2004, after Carrie had lost the election, after Katrina, after... Oh, so many things that you can just rattle off and and hang your head. Um, And there was a sense, at least for me, that I'd found this lovely domestic joy with this new woman. And yet there was a a trouble in the tension between having such private uh, pleasure with such public pain going on at all times. And I think in that poem, in part, I needed something to puncture that. Um, And what is a garden when two people are shaping it right, but a sort of, well, certainly for us, a little Edenic um, place where we grow things together. So for someone to sort of enter that space and take something from it um, is certainly a moment of, of, of breaking that, that peace and that, that tranquility. And certainly that character in that poem does it out of need. Um, and the, the characters in that poem have to in some way reconcile that need with their own their own love so so Derek like thinking about the the construction of the poem then when you said so it wasn't as if you'd seen this old woman Mm -hmm. (laughs) and maybe maybe she did she come to you in a a dream as you mentioned your dreams in the newspaper or but like how does that because it's interesting because sometimes people think with poems Mm -hmm. that there's always some Something that it's really attaching to in some more real way. If a person's telling you, I don't know, more so than, oh, it's a short story, of yeah. course. It know. must be all made up. It, yes. Yeah. So when when did you figure, did you think I need something to break in to hmm. something that is this this beautiful place, this garden? Yeah. And that's and you thought, I'll put, like, I guess it's just interesting to think yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that, about how she came to you and that was what to do? That's a good question. I mean, I, I know that I fretted for some amount of time that I'm using, a, even if it's a character, I'm using this transient figure in some manipulative way, right? Um, that I'm going to introduce a homeless person to sort of 
be a foil to my own um, sort of joy in life. And, and I didn't want that to feel um, managed and, and uh, constructed. Um, I'm not sure exactly when she appeared in the making of the poem. I think pretty early because I don't ever remember her not being there. Um, I remember one of the main troubles of that poem was was shaping it. It's a poem in, in tight syllabics. Um, where, yeah, the... Um, Can you, yes, talk a little bit about the syllabics and your choice of the, the formal structure. Of sure. That. In, in that particular poem, it's, it's a, a quatrain stanza, four lines. Syllabics mean that you measure out uh, the number of syllables per line. And in this particular poem, it's quantitative syllabics. Now we're getting a bit technical, where uh, the first line, I believe, is um, three syllables followed by two lines each of four Oh, I take it back. Starts with four, two lines of three, and then a final line of five. And they just kind of stagger down the page a little bit. But it's it's a very restrictive form. Um, and then remember trying so hard not to line break on articles like the or conjunctions like and. and but I, there, there was something as well about the tension of that form, and it, it fit with the sort of internal tension I felt. Um, and I wanted that speaker of that poem to sort of convey. Um, so it seemed like the right form, and I never gave up on it. So in the end, there it was, still in that form. But the, that, the years that went in that poem, much of them were spent with tinkering. And how, when you say years, Derek, what what time frame? Because poems can come in all time frames <laughs> and packages and and requirements of you and yeah it gestated for quite a while I, I remember i did bring it into a workshop at michigan at one point um it was eventually published in pleiades um the poet david baker who's, who's a friend and i saw him last night uh, it was lovely to catch up um used it and wrote an introduction to it and the first poem in the book um that would have been maybe 2007 or so when that appeared so and it, it even was I think was you can still find that on the website, their yes, website. That's probably right, yeah. And um, I'm sure, I, I mean, I was tinkering with it up until um, the time I, I turned in the final page proofs for the book. And and you do, you enjoy form, you know? It's oh, like yeah. Sestinas too. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's Sestinas in the book. There's... Um, there's a number of the poems are in syllabics. Um, why? So why do you think? What does that allow you to do, Derek? Like why? Because I also love syllabics too. But what? What, what yeah. do you get from it? <laughs> uh, it's, I like the silence of syllabics. I like that it's a meter you can't hear. In English, we can't hear it. Yeah, and um, that's such a lovely way to say it, though. I love the silence of syllabics. Yeah, and and the materiality of of the language. We end up. Um, we count on our fingers with syllabics as opposed to hearing in our heads. Um, and there's a particular syllabic that maybe we can chat about at some point that, that fits in part with the with the political structure of the book and, and the way in which I think of either poems in some way like the facade of, of a crumbling kind of Roman ruin or, or even, right, the Washington Capitol, right, sort of showing its cracks as I think our political... Um, and our cultural sort of framework are showing some cracks as well. We'll say now. Yeah, sure, yeah. Please. Um, so many of the poems in the book are in are in 11-syllable lines, hendecasyllabics, as it's <laughs> known by, I guess, those people who care to know. Um, and and yet it's not as if every line is, is strictly, you know, from beginning to end 11 syllables. What happens is many of the lines have drop lines in the middle. Um, it, it's hard to describe... 
over the air, but if you open up the first page of the book, you can see... Um, For this, those following along at home. Exactly, right. Open if up you, your copy of Other Rooms. To page one, and a line like, no shutter, no plunge, no cabin, here's a dropped line, strafed by sun. Um, and then the next line is simply all the way through, as when the earth constricts these wingtips and pulls, and then just a standard line break at the end of the line. Um, there's a there's a kind of silly arithmetic that's going on if you count these the lines that go from left hand margin to you know the white space in the edge of a poem those are a full eleven and then every other line has a drop line in the middle and if you add up both halves of those drop lines it always makes eleven so there's there's a fissuring that's happening to the hendecasyllabic throughout the poem it happens through much of the book and for me this is this is um. In the hendecasyllabic comes to us from you know the Greeks and the Romans, and I wanted a form that's that's breaking apart, that's showing cracks in its in its surface because, in my mind, right, our our political structure showing its cracks. Our political structure is based on sort of right democracy in, invented by the Greeks. Um, I, I I imagine the poem, sh um, you know, visual uh, appeal almost as like, right. Um, a Roman ruin sort of starting to come come apart a little bit. And if you go to Washington, D.C., it looks like Rome, right? I mean, that's the architecture that we turn to for our sense of order. And that order is breaking down in some way, right? The center cannot hold, as many people have said before me. <laughs> well, this and this structure, this is classic Derek Mong to oh, me. Oh, thanks. And so we'll take a short break. We'll be back. You're listening to Living Writers. Today on the program, Derek Mong with his collection, other Romes. He just read from a poem, Flying is Everything I Imagine Now and More. We'll be back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Today on the program, Derek Mong is here in the studio. His first collection of poems, Other Romes. Um, and Derek, you just, when we, before the break, um, you were, it was, that was great. Um, Thanks. <laughs> poet talk. <laughs> I was wondering when you, because I 
I saw that you were teaching at the Edna St. Vincent Millay yes. house. And I was wondering, were you doing classes where you were, you know, working with students on syllabics or well, what were you doing at the, at her, at her house? <laughs> what was I doing in her house? Snooping around, looking, you know, the house has not changed since she died. It's, um, it's open now for tours. Um, there's a guy named Peter Bergman. Hey, Peter you happen to listen or I'll send it to you. Um, he is the, uh, he's a man in charge and he has worked uh, pretty tirelessly to restore the house, which was uh, unchanged. Um, her sister lived in it for a while. Her old dresses are still hanging in the shower. Her clothes are still there. Her makeup was just pushed to either side of the, of the vanity mirror. And I was there doing a pretty informal workshop um, in the dead of winter in the middle of the forest um, one night out of every month, we went for maybe six months and I had students from all over and Peter was there and, um, it was an interesting experience. Yeah. Were you influenced by, by her work, Derek, or how did this, I, I guess, how did it come to be like, and because when you're there, you also seem to feel like there was this sense of this poet still there and oh, like yeah. that was meaningful or completely yeah i mean the 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 gardens are being restored and the swimming pool is still there where she and her her husband and lovers swam naked you were not allowed to wear clothes in the swimming pool um it's it's she's, how, how do you know that fact is that something that it's posted right it's, there's it's, a sign it's like no diving and no. with clothes on right. exactly yeah yeah i mean you're just not alive this is a parallel to your falling through the sky losing that's, your clothes that's right yeah. as as a teen, I were talking about many of these poems involve me losing articles of clothing in states of falling this yeah. is your connection to malay then yeah, that might be. That's a really because yeah, I don't feel a huge influence from Malay, but you know the the need to shed my clothes might be one of them. That's great. Well, should we hear one of the following poems? Thoughts? Sure. Yeah, I'll read a a shorter one. Um, this is called Blackout. Um, it's about a power outage. Uh, my father was working for a power company um, at the time, um, and their company was in part responsible. This was the big blackout a few years after nine eleven. Blackout. Little blue bolt on a split wire. Shock in the dark. My corrupter of clocks. You quiver once, then kindle flames that lick the bark off evergreens. One's broken bow unbound you from your artery. So blow the grid and burn the tree. Till block by block, the dark will dawn along these gravel roads. And cars crawl home on the harness of their high beams. Let the tiki torches dot the lawns. Let screen doors swing with laughter and lukewarm beer. Next door, my neighbors cuss the curfew cop. Someone shoots Roman candles off their roof and cheers. I'm home, upstairs, stripped to nothing but my underwear and running in the dark. My lips part. I plunge into the emptiness where a bed should be, its mattress, the net beneath an acrobat, blindfolded, free. My fall is like the time it takes a match to strike and singe the sheets. I am a comet streak or spark. I will end incomplete. I love that, the comet streak. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So... So Derek, that okay. So that poem, that was where did that that was placed before 
the book came out, right? Yes. Where where did um, Blackout have a life? Because it is you can also find that poem online. That's right. Yeah. Um, it um it appeared. I think that poem appeared actually in my undergraduate writing. Uh, my undergraduate um, Denison University has a has a um, uh, a journal called Exile. I think it appeared in there in a, maybe a, an earlier form, and then later on it appeared in Court Green, and then it was picked up in First Daily, I believe. Um, so it's had right. some legs. It's been nice. Yeah. yeah, First Daily. I think that's that's exactly where yeah. I saw it. Yeah. Um, so can we talk about the legs of a poem? Like how sure. and how do you? How do you find a place for them when you're, you, you know, like when we're thinking about sending out poems into the world? What what was your method? How to? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> it depends. Yeah. Earlier when I was, for instance, at Michigan, I was doing a lot of simultaneous submitting. Right. I would send in multiple places at once because I didn't assume anything was going to get grabbed by two people. Um, now I, I don't do that really almost ever. Um did you just set up some sort of a schedule for yourself where you thought every week I'm going to send or send poems? You know, I send poems when they're available. I, I keep a little log, um, which, you know, it's funny. I met a fiction writer once, April Wilder. April's a deer. Uh, and April needs someone just to remind her what stamps cost and things. She kind of is a bit. Anyway, I remember April sending out her story to many, many places and couldn't remember where they went. And I was like, oh, April, that's you're too, you're too talented. Someone's going to take both of those and you'll upset an editor. And um, I think, lo and behold, it may have happened once or twice. But um, April's a, a dear, wonderful writer. Um, so I learned long ago, not that I'm, boy, would be in that lucky position of having people fight over my work, but just to be safe and, and to be respectful to editors who... God knows, have a lot to read. I keep a little logbook, and um, you know, you have those poems which, in your heart, you really think could maybe earn a place in some really, you know, like a like a Southern Review or something like that. So you give them a shot there, and um, you see what happens. And if they don't, you send to another journal that maybe might not be as selective, and you know, you just yeah, you, you give it a shot, yeah, and keep sending them out in the world, and then. Then also thinking about the manuscript then as you're shaping the manuscript, because as we said, I like you, you worked on some of the poems in here in mm -hmm. in other rooms. These poems come from your time at Michigan, mm -hmm. driving by the river, mm -hmm. probably the Huron. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So but and then then what are you doing with it? Like walk us through some of the time, maybe post MFA graduation. And oh, it's you know, this this book. You know, I, I spent a long time on it. I mean, there's three or four poems that I wrote as an undergraduate, as a senior. That you know, you, I hit a couple of months, and I hit some, hit some nice, nice poems. Many are from MFA time. Many are from post MFA time. I mean, it's they are the best poems I've written probably over about an eight to ten year period. Um, so I'm I'm very selective. Um, I never really assumed that my MFA thesis was just going to wind up being a book. I knew there was parts of it. There was maybe the beginning of a structure, but, um, you know, the book from the very beginning, I wanted to be the best work. And, and if it was all thematically tied together, great. If not, no worries. It's, it's not a miscellany per se, but um, 
there's a number of different poems in, in different voices. There's a poem about eating an eating competition in, in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, that's a kind of juvenilian satire about excess in America. And Well, it's great when you can work bratwurst into a, a poem. I, yes, right. That's yeah, off, rare, Derek you know. Mung. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, but that poem sounds very different than some of the others and was written a number of years later. And, um, you know, I, for, for some time I fretted about whether it fit together. It sounded like a, a single a single book. But I think more and more we as poets and, and, and whatnot ought to think less about our sort of large books and think about shaping single great poems. And they're going to fit together because they came from the same voice and the same life. Um, so there's no doubt that they will you know, be good friends in those pages between those covers and, um, you know, where the chips may fall in terms of whether there's a, an arc is is maybe less important. And when you say, like, these poems could be good friends, like where, but considering how you position them, yeah. was then chronology something that you had in the back of your mind? Not that any anyone would know necessarily, except for you, Derek, right? Yeah. But is that one of the, the ways that you came at it or did the poems literally feel like friends across a span of years and they could sit next to each other yeah there's there's a couple of ways to answer that i mean there's there's definitely if there is a sort of discernible arc in here it's it's um falling in love right the poems begin with me sort of meeting my wife and by the end there are there's a poem called to keep from drowning which is sort of a long meditation about oh the fear of responsibility in some way about being apart from someone who you love very much about um, the worry of um, what it would be like to have children, um, which I, I, in fact, went on to do not that long ago. Um, but it, it, there is an arc of a relationship in this book. And, and that poem that I read earlier, Morning, Noon, and Night, is certainly a later poem in the book, in part because it's a relationship that's already feels um, solid in its, in, its, in its garden, right? It's a poem about a garden. Um, so that's, that's one definite arc. Um, some of the other poems, sort of, there's three Fellini poems in there. Those those are a bit of an arc. They're they're the carnivalesque poems of the book, and there's two middle sections. The the second and fourth section of the book do sort of sit in their their own space. One of them is a series of adaptations from from Latin, and um, I, I I shape those all together. Those were meant to be read as a sequence. The Latin corpus. The Latin corpus, yeah, that, that a lot of my work sort of gets inspiration from and draws from. And meant to be read as a sequence. Okay. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Carl Phillips, in one of his books, has a wonderful series of Greek fragments that he translates. And we often think of fragments as being you know, like Anne Carson's beautiful translations of, of Sappho as being these shards that are strewn across a landscape never to be reassembled. Carl, in one of his books, put fragments together as a sequence. Really enjoyed that. And, and that's one of the, the, that section, the Song of Sickness, is a series of Jesuit poems that, that by, which are by no means fragments, but they get something from, from their, uh, uh, from their, 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 their little family that they've made, that I've made for them. Um, I think at one point I, I referred to it as like a medley translation. Um, <laughs> in fact, I wrote a paper for, for a translation studies course at Michigan where I used that term for Yopi Prinz, a, a wonderful, wonderful professor here. Yes, there's a, there's a shout out for Yopi. There's a shout out for Yopi, yeah. Hey, Yopi. Yeah, and, and the classics are near and dear to your heart. They are, yeah. I mean, I, I studied Latin at Berkeley and um, I 
continue to do courses at Denison. And um, yeah, I mean, there's there's few things in this book that could be so easily pointed to as as um, influences. Yeah. And, and why do you think it's important to point back in uh, a way and to work with uh, and to have these connections? I mean, I, I can see the connections with like you light up when you were talking about the Greek foundations and the mm-hmm. and the connections to our present day politics and the straining seams now. And yeah, I mean, I think one of the main things is that I was seeing or, you know, I, I'm not the first person to make this case that in those sort of Bush years and, and we're still living in that. Um, we're in a sort of silver age of America. I mean, I think I think we've moved past the the high water mark that were at Rome was the Augustan period, or or probably sort of pre-Augustan was the actual Republic when they were they didn't have an emperor so much as the Senate. Um, by the time you get to Juvenal, um, the and 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 Lucan, there's this sense of boy, we've really gone astray, and. Um, you know, we have vomitoriums, and uh, I'm sure they would have something like an eating contest at, in, um, right, in, in uh, Silver Age Rome. Um, maybe not worst, but maybe. Okay, yes. we're going to take a short break, sure. and then we'll be right back. Um, today on Living Writers, Derek Mong is here with his collection, Other Rooms. We'll be back. Welcome back. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. Um, today on the program, Derek Mong is here. His poetry collection, Other Rooms. Um, and that was just one of Derek's song choices, Modest Mouse there. We kind of cut them off in their prime as they were just getting so ramped good. up. They rock. <laughs> well, Derek, we... Um, We've been we've been talking about other roams, and I I don't usually make requests, but I ask you to to actually read the octopus poem, um, if if you you wouldn't mind. This is this is one I remember from Khaled's mm-hmm. uh, course workshop that we were both in yeah. way back. A great workshop, so. if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, I finished this poem. I remember writing this in Ann Arbor, um, which is interesting because it takes place uh, in part in Monterey, California where there's a famous aquarium. Um, and my, my niece, Natalie, figures in this poem, and, and my wife does as well. Octopus, Monterey, 2004. His flesh stretched out in eight squirmy tails. Or so my cousin Natalie, she's six today, believes. Look, look, I can see his feelers. I can touch his suckers. Oh, octopus. My umber-than-amber bundle. Will you fill your parachute, now your chartreuse, and teach me how to hide when everyone is looking? Nat, too smart for six, told me once that dolor rhymes with color. Also feelers. Also lover. 
Sunday morning, 10 a.m. My love and I munch marshmallow cereal in bed. I scatter a handful across her belly, then slowly, almost wholly, kiss away the constellation. Here's my confession. Surprised by sudden love, I am equally unsure of where in time we are or might be going. By noon, she's red as every sixth bit of cereal. The color of our coming. Natalie again, perfectly enamored. Did you know they funnel water? It's true, it's called a siphon. She's right. It works like jet propulsion. Octopi don't so much move as occupy another burst of ocean. Call it piggybacking streams, technicolor flush, a dance, or drift. Just register my envy. My flesh will always displace a place. The octopus is wherever it is going. To feel is not the same, nor even analogous to having feelers. And yet both, through subterfuge and hues, rely upon the palate. Some days I'm blue and lightly bruised, conspicuous as the ocean. Tomorrow I will redden, let passion fog my picture. My love, are we ever more than our collected strokes of pain or pleasure? I want so badly to breathe, clear across my canvas, maybe cast it into a pane of glass and live inside transparent as six-year-old adulation. I can see him, I can see him, I can touch his feelers. Eye to eye, gnat and the octopi, she fogs the glass like a dragon, even draws a star, five points for the cephalopod, around a sucker. This is how we stare into the glass without facing our reflection. Monterey, some beach this summer. As my lover disappears behind the reeds to pee, I realize that, despite the moonlight, she's the absence of color. Her skin is steam, her hair's the evening air, deep black and absorbing. Tonight the tide will swell with jellyfish, translucent. If I am silent, still as the dunes themselves, I swear that she will never reach me. Look, you can see it moving. Nat is pressed so close to the glass, I cannot, at first, make out the ink cloud, spreading thin as conversation through the water. Neat trick, she says. And I agree. As the octopus disappears, his body like a fogged-in flare, shot up from the bottom of the ocean. I am green with envy. I am seen by anyone and everyone willing to pull the ink away and part its curtain. Natalie is miffed, proceeds to tap the glass and ask, Why didn't he go away? I offer that he might be shy, but I'm thinking four limbs plus four limbs equals a couple. She is unimpressed, instead suggests, Can we go feed the seagulls? Thanks, Derek. Sure. It, it seems like that poem with the voices coming through it. Like, you're, it, do you have a like a sense of fun in with that, and and with the octopus image itself seems to lend itself to that. That's a really good point. Yeah, I, I mentioned before the show. This is one of the poems that has aged the least to me. Yeah, that that I'm so, 
I'm very fond of reading it still. I mean, you know, you're always kind of if, if you're behind your poems, you're usually pretty fond of reading them at least for a little while after you've written them. Um, and I think you're right. I think there's a fun to it. There's not a ton of moments in my poems where a little child speaks. That might change now that I have a little child. Um, but yeah, Natalie's voice kind of does bring a, a levity to that poem that many of the other ones don't necessarily have. And and I love how the last line is this moment of she can so quickly move on, right? Like the, there's the speaker who's clearly a bit, a bit nervous about, you know, suddenly being in love and you know can he hide perhaps behind the curtain of ink the octopus provides a, a certain um he's jealous right he's jealous of the octopus um and for natalie we're already moving on to something else a new a new amusement um and i love how the poem or the poem ends up there um, I think I just stumbled upon that line. I got lucky. And the seagulls being even outside of the aquarium. So something yeah. like outside completely. She's <laughs> like, well, let's go. It's talk about a momentum. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. She she winds up thinking about something that's free and, and out and moving. And yeah, the speaker, me, right. I'm, I'm in, in, you know, you know, because in some way that is so clearly based on, on sort of you know, falling in love and we all have that feeling, but, um, yeah. How, how comfortable are you with being the me of the poems when you're in the, the public space? Um, you know, pretty, pretty comfortable. I mean, there's, there's a, you know, the, much of the feeling behind that poem is, is, is there was, was what I sort of went through. Um, I met my wife when I was maybe 23. I didn't, and I didn't know she was going to be my wife yet. Um, and I didn't think I was maybe ready to get, um, married and committed, but she was such the right woman. And it's, um, yeah, there's, there's a way in which your life unfolds in ways you didn't quite expect. So, um, so the facts of it are, are different and the facts of it have been, uh, or, or the, the facts of the poem, I should say, aren't, aren't all true, but it certainly comes from a, a place that's emotionally true. Um, and then that's true to varying degrees throughout the book. The, the earlier poem I read, Morning, Noon, and Night, certainly emotionally true, if not factually true. And and you and Annie are are actually working on a translation. You've got a grant from the NEA That's in right. 2010. Yes. Um, and it's a project with a, a Russian poet. Could you tell us? Cause, so you're collaborating to. in work as well. We are. Oh, it's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a fun process. Since since my, my son Witt's been born, we've, we've worked less on it. But um, that's correct. My wife won the grant. It's very funny. Um, I'm the collaborator. And uh, her name's on the grant. And my name is somewhere underneath. But um, uh, we, uh, we work on the poems on a, about a 50-50 basis. She puts together a sort of... I, I, I have a little Russian... Um, it's getting better as, as uh, my wife raises my son in Russian. Um, that said, she certainly has to go to the Russian poems and brings me a, a, a crib, um, a very literal translation, and then I work it up into into a poem. The poet we're working on is named Maxim Amalian. He was born in 1970. How did you uh, choose him, or did he choose you guys? Annie was in Russia. She was there on a different grant. Uh, she was she translates um, she trans translated two early Soviet satires called the Little Golden Calf and the Twelve Chairs by these authors Ilf and Petrov. Um, one of them's coming out just a few months from Northwestern, um, and she was over there on a project related to them. And we had wanted to work on a poet together. She had been reading some Russian poetry. She was kind of in the little Russian writing community, and she came across Maxim. I came out. 
Um, Literally, like this person or his work. She knew his work (laughs) from, yeah, she knew his work and then she met him. And I don't know exactly how she met him, um, but she had already known him for a few weeks when I came out and she introduced me to him. How do you cheat? Like, how do you decide though, Derek? Because that's what's, because I even remember that we would talk about that um, with Halid, like where it's, that's an important part of the work of the the poet is is to translate. So it seems like, but finding who you want the match to, because you're entering into this this person's like their mind and heart as well okay. i mean not to get to super sappy but <laughs> i know certainly um annie chose maxime i mean i i she obviously she knew my work she knew where my strengths were as a writer um i'm, I'm really interested in sound and wordplay um maxime is a sonically very uh interesting and innovative poet and a poet of of neologisms um, and it, Russian poetry is far more formal on on the whole than English American poetry is. I mean, and my work is informed by form and syllabics. So there was a fit there. Maxime also translates from Latin. He's translated Catullus into Russian. So huh. yes, right. Annie saw like a, a, a real. Yeah, there was there was a, a there was a link there. Okay, so Derek, is it like so you're so Annie's doing like a. Like a, a crib, you said, like a yeah, workup of yeah. it. And then you're looking into it for the poem and some of the connections and that. And then are you having a dialogue with the poet who's probably knock on wood still alive? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Max, Maxime is still with us. And, and we talk to him and he talks to him. Um, yeah. Here and there. Um, he, he just sent her his new collected poems in Russian. Um, the bigger dialogue that happens is between Annie and I, because we, we've literally taken right the difference between the sense of a poem its semantic meaning and its phonetic pleasure and its phonetic meaning too, right? Like a poem makes meaning of phonetic sound. And um, we've split the baby, right? Like she is, she's in charge of the semantic meaning because she can read Russian. I'm kind of more in charge of, of making a, a poem and the sound of it. So it, it is a, an interesting, well, I mean, let's not, let's not mince words. We have like a, an argument about it or, or a debate. We, you know, it comes, it comes, it's a heated kind of contest when I want to keep some amount of sound and she is very invested in, that's not quite what the Russian says. And, um, you know, those are, those are interesting conversations when, that we have together. Lively. Arm wrestling. Oh yeah. Like. We should not be choosing who has to do the dishes after those conversations because, like, yeah, anyway. <laughs> Derek Mung, it's been lovely to talk with you. Let's hear one of poems, not in other roams, but from sure. new work that will be in the next collection. Would you mind? And we'll, we'll go out on this poem. That would be I, delightful. Oh. And thank you so much for having me, T. This has been a great, a great afternoon. Come back anytime, Derek. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. <laughs> So, yes, um, yeah, I will close on this. Midnight at the School of Cosmetology. Midnight at the School of Cosmetology and the mannequins, vacant as Caesars in their hall of mirrors, enthrall a night watchman. His fingers trace their root holes, perfect rows. Their styrofoam, bald as the gibbous moon, outlives the follicles of a thousand women thinking. Last night, the imported hair shone fulgent as polygraph ink and delicate as relics. He still recalls its boxed arrival. Bangs, pigtails, wigs, whirlpools of third-world beauty cut 
to train beauticians of tomorrow. And though he doesn't fetishize its climate or cuisine, pelmeni on mayonnaise, rain sieved from a tin roof's runoff, he's breathed the hair before the students kerosened it scentless. There is a world pressed between a harvest and its dreaming. There is a hallway he taps his nightstick back through, luminous as the one he entered. All night, hairdos never to travel overseas dissolve in the field behind the building. When his shift ends, he walks home and clicks the TV on. He turns to stone till morning. Thank you, Derek. Thanks so much. Derek Mong, his book, Other Romes. You've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, September 14, 2011. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, Democrats send a bill to Congress to protect Social Security from cuts, but will it be enough? Despite a deadly toll on civilians, cluster bombs are still used by some countries. Now a campaign in the UK targets the funding of the arms. And volunteers in Texas are fighting some of the worst fires in the state's history, but budget cuts are hampering efforts. Those stories and more. First, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. Flooding in Pakistan has destroyed more than one million homes and left 300,000 people homeless. Humanitarian aid group Oxfam says more than five million people have been affected by the disaster, which is concentrated in the Sindh province in the southern part of the country. More than 200 people have died and more rain is expected, according to Pakistan's meteorological department. The UN's Claire Nullis spoke Tuesday. It said more widespread heavy to very heavy rains are predicted in Lower Sindh during the next three days. Heavy spells would cause more flooding in already inundated areas. An Oxfam representative on the ground says it hasn't stopped raining for 10 days and that people have lost 